It's so good to see each of you, and thank you for being here, for getting up out of bed this morning earlier, and also for braving the uh, inclement weather. I did hear they have canceled all the schools for tomorrow. (laughs) It's not true. It's a joke. But I thought maybe it'd keep you awake if... Especially the young folks. If, oh, this is the part we tune out. No, no, no. This is where we get started. Um, thank you for coming. And uh, those of you at home, we're glad to have you as well, too. And if you're visiting with us, we're always delighted to have guests. And we hope that the service is a blessing to you. We start in Acts chapter 22 this morning. And this is where we've been... Uh, working for some time, the book of Acts, and we pick up in verse 22. We left Paul last week speaking in defense of himself, and we talked about how that had not gone well, and at a certain point, a certain turn in his subject matter had um, the, the crowd that had called for his death Uh, and had been silent as he began to speak, will now find their voice, and uh, we'll pick up where we left off. We'll read through about verse 11 of chapter 23. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, The tribune ordered them to be brought into the barracks, Paul that is, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul is a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Verse 30 But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now when he said this, 
a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and all the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension came violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is God's word and lets us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for a Sunday morning, an opportunity to open our Bibles. Lord, would you teach us what this means so we may understand? And Lord, would you give us such an understanding in order that we obey where it says we must change? Lord, may we be your students. May you be our teacher. May we pay attention And may you make us more like yourself. May I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it was, uh, as as we we discussed last week and just read now, the crowd is enraged because Paul brought, brought up the subject of Gentiles, specifically how he heard a voice from the Lord that he was called to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. We talked about how the problem wasn't with his proselytizing, making Gentiles Jews, but to evangelize, giving the Gentiles uh, the treasure of God's chosen people, a relationship with God without their Jewishness. To them, that was was blasphemy. Uh, The question kind of hinged on whether or not this man made all this up or if he indeed heard from the Lord. Some of the Pharisees are now considering whether or not that's true. And we talked about how it seemed plausible that the reason the tribune allowed Paul to speak in the first place was perhaps to learn the meaning of what is going on. It didn't work. And now he's called them back into the barracks, the crowd again going crazy. And seemingly it's made things worse. Uh, It's quite a, a vivid, dramatic verse when you read in 23 that as they were shouting... And throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Uh, I've never been in such a situation. I've, I've been places where I thought this is a little out of hand. I've been to sporting events where I wondered if uh, it was safe to be there with you know, certain jersey on. Um, but I've never seen people go this nuts. This is kind of an Eastern thing. Us Westerners, we're, we're a little more stoic. Uh, when we throw a fit, uh, we might just like tweet something these days. Um, but to th- swing your coat around your head and to throw dust in the air, screaming, this actually has less to do with anger or excitement, and in this context has more to do with horror, and that's in uh, the idea of blasphemy. That's what they think they're hearing. Either way, the tribune, that's the commander of the Antonio Fortress with a thousand men under his watch, for the second time orders Paul to be brought back into the barracks. 
but this time Luke tells us that Paul's to be examined by scourging. Now, there's different ways Romans would would whip people. Uh, there there were different methods. One involved rods. Uh, you could be beaten with the lash by the Jews. Paul talks about that happening twice. He said the 39 lashes. Now that's 40 that the Old Testament talks about, but because no one wanted to miscount and give 41 and then be guilty of having the same done to oneself, they'd pull back one and do 39. This, though, we know enough about the words that are used here and the history that went around with Rome. This was a scourging. And it was the same thing that Jesus underwent. And it was the same thing that people often died under. Uh, the whip was made in such a way as to, as to destroy one's back. And it was quite a dramatic uh, verse to read that he's being stretched out for the whips. I mean, he might not survive it. Some say the behavior of this crowd is, is excitement or anger. We know it's, it's, it's blasphemy. Um, but citizenship comes up. Uh, he's, he's being stretched out to be beaten. And we read before that he had played the citizenship card, and he had this time. You fast or rewind just a bit and hear him say, I'm willing to go to Jerusalem even to death. And you almost get the idea he's trying to die as fast as he can. So why is he ruining it now? Well, that's not the point. He's carrying the gospel as far as he can carry it. And if this means possible death and without uh, a proper hearing, well, let, let's see if we can, we can get out on uh, a technicality, which is what it is. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? If you skip to 27, Tribune said, Tell me. He says, Yes. Then talks about buying his citizenship. Paul's comes from birth. Most of us don't think about our citizenship that way. Now, if, if immigration is, is uh, part of the scenario, then it's different. But if, if you're born... An American, you don't really worry too much about that. That's just not pressure within our culture. But in this, it was huge, especially when Rome had taken basically the known world over. And if you're not a Roman, they can do with you as they please. If you are a Roman, then you've got certain legal rights. That's what's happening here. Uh, citizenship was passed on from father to son. Uh, Paul's father was a Roman, so Paul is a Roman citizen. Uh, it was also could be conferred by reward. Those who'd served the empire well. Ever watched Ben Hur? You know he he, he saves uh, the governor when the galley's going down, uh, having released the rowers from the bottom. I told you when I saw that as a kid, and you know watching it drown and it's kind of gross. You know, the, trying to get the chains off and everything. Don't show that to your kids, okay? Let them grow up a bit. They'll have nightmares about rowing in a galley or something. Um, but when it was found that the battle was not lost, because the governor's trying to take his life, it's him and Ben-Hur on the raft, and he saves him. And when they find out the battle's won, well, he'd served the empire such that the ring was given to him. He's basically a son of this governor. He's a full Roman citizen at that point. 
that could happen. Uh, the case with this uh, tribune, however, he says that he paid for this by some great sum. Paul says, well, I was born into it. Uh, it also could be bought, not with a fee, but with a bribe. And certain people were able to do that. It seems what had happened with this fellow, uh, Claudius Lysias. And then there's, we're kind of fuzzy as to the date of when this became possible. But at a certain point, Rome decided we can make money this way. We can sell citizenship. And it could be that Claudius Lysias is named after the Claudius who was the one who said we'll sell citizenship. And maybe he bought it that way. We don't know. That would be... um, supposing or conjecture. But the reason why the man was afraid was because he could be executed for wrongly punishing a Roman citizen. They had rights and he treated him like a barbarian with no rights, bound him and was about to scourge him. So you get to verse 30. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, unbound him, commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet Paul has a sit-down before them. So the motivation for this mandatory meeting is not so much Paul's best interest, but the tribune's. After all, he'd just come within an inch of scourging a Roman citizen, which he could be punished, even executed for. But it's not a planned meeting. It's a, it's a called mandatory meeting. Do you all like mandatory meetings? I remember my first one. I was... Uh, a sales associate for Sears department store. Later became a loss prevention specialist. That means I got to look at cameras, and if people were stealing things, I could go tell them, uh, you can't go anywhere. We've called the police, and they're on their way. I didn't do that long because I thought the idea was great until I actually had to confront somebody who'd been stealing, and what they told me they were going to do to me if I didn't get out of their way. Uh, But it was on a Sunday, the mandatory meeting. And I told Dad, it's mandatory. What do I do? And he said, this is not the rule. It's an exception. Just go if it's mandatory. And what do I find out? It's a sales pitch for having a better quarter over the holidays than they did the last year before. Rah, rah, sell a bunch of stuff. My whole life crumbled before my eyes. I'm like, business is fake. It's phony. They're all liars. This isn't mandatory. I could have went to church. You're supposed to laugh at that, but you didn't. (laughs) Um, Mandatory meeting. The tribune has called it. Everybody has to go, and he's going to find out what is going on. Why do they hate Paul? Why do they want him dead? So... um, He's still got to figure it out, demands answers by sitting Paul in front of his, confused, his uh, accusers. And Paul starts out, in effect, saying, uh, these are not his words. His words are, I have lived uh, good conscience up to this day. You could reword that in, I'm innocent of the charges that you've brought against me. I'm doing what God called me to do. Uh, that, that's, that's basically what this is supposed to, to mean. And that is what uh, triggers the response. If you look at verse 2, that's 23. And the high priest Ananias, same from before with with Jesus, and though they thought the real uh, high priest was Caiaphas, 
commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. I, I, this is something we, we're not used to. We're not used to basically court hearings where if, if they don't like what the person's saying, then uh, bailiff hit him in the face. But, but that's, that's what happens. And then what happens as a result of being struck in the face, you hear Paul retort, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. There's a point to this. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck, which they couldn't do. You don't do that kind of thing. Uh, same as with the trial with Jesus. It couldn't meet at night uh, without due process, but they did it anyway. So if you're painting the picture in, in your mind, he hasn't been treated fairly by anyone but Rome, who has technicalities built into the system. But it seems that as far as the rulers in Israel, they do basically what they want. And then on the response to what he'd ask, um, contrary to the Lord, you ordered me to be struck, those who stood by asked, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I told you a couple of weeks ago or last week, hey, this man's an expert in the law. You kind of want to make sure you watch yourself going toe-to-toe on the law with an expert. They say, hit him. He says, you can't do that. It's contrary to the law, but you're judging me according to the law. You're a hypocrite. So then they say, well, you, Mr. Smarty Pants, knows the law. You can't talk evil about a ruler. And then Paul says, well, I didn't know that was him, and quotes the scripture that backs it up. Again, he's an expert in the law. So... What do we make with that? It would be fantastic to watch on a program or to have been there in the room. But is this the Paul that we know? Um, Has he lost his temper? Was he right in what he said? Did he say what he said the right way? What should we make of Paul not knowing that Ananias was the high priest? We're not going to have questions or answers to all of these, but we can take a stab at it And uh, before I do. Have any of you, don't raise your hands, uh, found yourself in a heated situation where you said something you later wished you didn't? I think we're probably all human. Uh, It has a lot to do with temperament. Some people uh, are quicker to do that than others. Fuse is longer. Some fuse is shorter. Uh, I remember a situation that I asked... Corey about this earlier in the week because it came up when I was thinking about it. A situation happened in a coffee shop where she used to work. Before uh, we began to have children, she worked. I think she worked what till about you know the day before the 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 last you know birthday. Um, it, it was a little bit before that, a few weeks, but um, it was a lovely place to work. Her, her boss man was a good guy. The whole family worked there. And a lot of folks from church did. Some young girls from the youth group. And the situation is it's lunch hour. It gets hectic. A lot of people that live on the main street in downtown would, would come. And they'd have sandwiches and things. And ever say something? And because the room is so loud, you say it loudly to be heard. But just... By chance, it seems, for some dumb reason, the room kind of drops out just 
for the moment you say that thing and everybody hears it? Well, what the guy wanted was a refill, right? And he'd asked this girl who was waiting tables for a refill. She hadn't responded, so he says, What's wrong with you? Are you deaf or something? That's what kind of echoed out. And this girl, I don't know that, that she knew where it was coming from or who said it. She's busy. But the owner's wife who worked there went to help the poor man and informed him politely, by the way, she is deaf in one ear and half deaf in the other. And when you've got hearing out of one ear, it kind of throws off your depth perception. It's hard for you to figure out where in the room sound is coming from. Your brain can't do its triangulation stuff. So what did this guy do? Well, he was crushed. He was, was, was embarrassed. He didn't apologize just to her. He, he walked over and apologized to this girl. He knew he was in the wrong, and he corrected it. Uh, he did get his refill, and everything was great. But here's what I think we might have a case for. Paul the Apostle, being slapped in the face, comes back quickly, perhaps in anger, realizes his mistake, and corrects it quickly, which is not common. Most of us, if we make a mistake, you first of all act like you didn't or act like you didn't aware of or convince the other person that it was their fault or something like that. You know how it goes. Defer, defer, defer until you can't possibly and then just change the subject. <laughs> but here's our options. Um, Paul is being sarcastic. That would be the opinion of Calvin and Augustine. Those, those are heavy hitters. But being sarcastic here by saying, I didn't know that you were the high priest. I didn't know they gave that honor out to anybody, the likes of you or, or, or whatever, as to try to say, you're not the high priest because you don't deserve to be the high priest. That works as far as getting to the point where he quotes the scripture to say, yes, it says in the Bible, you're not supposed to speak evil of the ruler. So it, it doesn't quite sarcastic on one hand and then apologetic with scripture as the basis because he Paul's incapable of using God's word sarcastically which would follow that because yeah, we, we can't speak evil of you know it I don't think that would work uh, the meeting was informal that that could be part of it it's a mandatory meeting they're brought there against their will so being not planned the officials may not have been wearing their fancy outfits now, now, this was a lot of pomp and circumstance when they met according to plan. And there were lots of, of robes, and the high priest would have had the one that would stick out among all the others. Maybe he's not wearing it. So Paul doesn't see it, and he doesn't recognize him. Uh, maybe it's a possibility, but we have no way of, of, of figuring that out. Another that is brought up from time to time is that Paul couldn't see well. And some think that that might be his... Uh, thorn in the flesh. He does say that he has to read with or write with large letters. So it could be that uh, he can't see clearly enough to know one face from another, but that might go as far as to say that uh, the reference to the whitewashed wall was not a term for hypocrisy, but rather a white-robed wearing figure who couldn't be identified. Yeah, you with the white robe on. I think we're grasping at, at straws here. 
The simplest and probably the best understanding, Paul mistakenly lashes out in anger at first, but then checks himself after finding out that Ananias was the high priest. And if that's the case, or if it's not, uh, I think that's a good idea anytime. There is nothing wrong in a debated situation, or even an argument, to say, you know, you make a good point. I didn't have access to that information, but now that I do, I see that differently. Uh, I was clearly mistaken. Or maybe come back later. I lost my cool. I try not to, but I did. And what I said afterward, I wouldn't have said if I hadn't. And I am sorry for that. And I hope you'll forgive me. It's difficult to say, if not excruciating. But what do you think of a person who does versus someone who doesn't? Back to the coffee shop. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why is she even working here? How could she work if she can't hear what people say? Uh, jerk O. <laughs> Just write him off. Uh, I've seen your sort. We don't need you. But no, a soft answer resulted in conviction, which resulted in an apology, which resulted in. A happy day. And later down the road, a sermon illustration. Right? (laughs) Um, I think it's a good word. So, what happens next is both clever and shrewd. Again, there are commentaries that say, I don't know if that's what he's doing or if he did. Was it okay that he did this? But I work off the word perceived. Now, when Paul perceived, he's noticed something. That one part was Sadducees, the other part Pharisees. He said, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. The hope is is, uh, eternity. That I am on trial. What is he doing here? Well, he knows what he's doing here because, and when he'd said this, the dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Assembly is divided. It looks very possible, if not confirmed that to diffuse the situation, Paul goes for the one issue he knew would divide these two groups. Remember, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows the inside track. And this is as conservative versus liberal theological uh, landmine as he could, he knows. So if he brings it up, he knows it'll pit them against each other. And maybe it'll be enough for him to get out uh, without a scratch. He's been scratched quite a bit already. So when the dissension became violent, it worked. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, sounds bad, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force, bring him into the barracks. So for the third time in as many chapters, a Roman official comes to Paul's rescue. Now, up until that point, I think the the passage is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of... uh, Go thou and do likewise. There's not a lot of theological issues brought to bear, and we see how they're used. Uh, We aren't even given much of what he's said to them. This one's pretty short. First sentence he said uh, got him slapped in the face, and the second thing he did was pit them against each other. It looks bad. He's about to get torn apart, but he's saved at the last minute. And then comes the night. The story ends there. The next thing we read is about that night. 
and what Paul was thinking about lying in his cell in the dark, surely alone. I wish we knew. I'm more interested in, in that situation. Tell me more about that. It's the second night he's spent in jail. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult, if not entirely impossible, to get anything out of a passage of Scripture without an imagination and trying to put yourself in someone's shoes. It might be sandals in this case. But... Everybody told him not to go to Jerusalem. The last thing he said on that was, why are, you, why are you breaking my heart? I've got to go. And their last words were, let the will of God be done. And a lot of them go with him. And when he gets there, he's bearing gifts. Uh, he takes those to the, the church in Jerusalem, uh, gives testimonies to what God's done among the Gentiles. Luke doesn't record any discussion about that other than that they rejoiced. And then immediately we learn of this plan that James had. It seems all James wants to talk about is Paul's optics and this plan for his, his, his PR campaign. Work with these guys and uh, purify yourself along with them. It didn't work. Uh, in the process of actually doing that, they lay hands on him in the temple uh, those things that had been said about him to smear him were said out loud. The whole group is, is ready to kill him. He gets to speak. They listen for a moment, but they want him dead. So take him out, and then they're going to flog him. I don't even know what it's like to think. I know I'm a Roman. They don't know I'm a Roman. I'm going to tell them. Maybe they'll stop. Maybe they won't. Maybe this is the end. I don't know. But it's not the end. He sits them in front of these people. He gets one sentence out. He's hit in the face. And they try to tear him apart. And he's back in the barracks again. And for too long, the sun sets. He's alone. He's human. He has to be depressed. Uh, what do you think of oneself when everything you're trying to say that you feel is more important than life itself and no one wants to listen to it. And not just strangers, the people you grew up with that you know. And they don't just not want to hear it. They want you dead as a result of it. I'm sure his body's all beat up. Uh, I'm sure there's little, if any, medical attention given to him. It's a bad situation. Uh... Paul knew it would be difficult, so he shouldn't be completely surprised. But I'm sure he didn't think that it would end like this. But I would be shocked if he wasn't thinking maybe this is the end. What hope does he have? And as far as his de despondency, well, you just rewind the story. That seems clear. I'm sure he was full of doubt, too. I mean, how else can you evaluate the last defense so I start out by trying to say, listen, my conscience is clear. This is what the Lord told me to do. You get slapped in the face and then you figure out, well, this is a waste of time. So maybe out of desperation, he throws the grenade in the room and he knows which one to throw. And then he's, he's back in custody. And do you sit around and wonder, was that the way I should have done it? Should I wait until everybody was quiet and try again? Did I 
cop out? Did I tap? Am I going to be held responsible for this? Uh, My temper did flare. Theirs are too. But I don't think that anybody could be proud of that defense. And then there's the fear. What's going to happen next? I am Jerusalem's biggest problem, and now I'm on Roman on Rome's chart or, 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 or screen or whatever. Now uh, is only time before I'll be more valuable to this tribune dead than alive. They'll, they'll just figure out a way. I'll disappear, maybe. And this is where, if we've if if, if we know our Bibles, we can cross-reference some of these things. Uh, in his second letter to Timothy, that would be the last writings that we have. This would be before Nero, tradition tells us, takes his life. He says, a quote, At my first defense, that's this one, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And this is where you're thinking, where is James? Where's Peter? Where's the rest of the apostles? Where's any of the Christians? Where's the delegation that went with him? He's alone, and this isn't right. But if we keep reading that passage, uh, I think it's chapter 4, this is verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And then if you flip back over to where were we? Acts chapter 23. Verse 11 is the last one that we read and the last one for today's paragraph. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts of me in Jerusalem, so must you must testify also in Rome. That's pretty much word for word, isn't it? So not only did Luke tell us this is what happens, but Paul writes about it too. And if you've got an imagination enough to, to, to visualize the events as they unfold, this has to be the most fascinating of it all. And it's almost an insult to the text itself to try to figure out, okay, how did the Lord stand by him? That doesn't matter. Paul knew it was him. Paul knew who was speaking. The first part, the Lord, the Lord stood by him. And this, this is what we'll pull our application out of. We're just going to have to look at Paul and, and see if this would be true of the Lord and his other children. But who is standing by him, Paul tells us? One who'd been there before. Maybe in the same cell. One who'd been scourged, not almost. One who stood in front of that council, that high priest. One who'd been hit in the face. Uh, one who'd had all his men scattered to the four winds. And you start piling up the similarities here. It, it's uncanny. Who comes to visit him? One who's been through all of it already. Twenty-some years prior. But it's the Lord who's standing with him. No one believed him. All left him. One who'd been beaten, despised. One who was certainly wished dead. They'd worked on that for years. 
Now, if the jailers who might have put Paul where they put Paul may have, you know, if they were human, might have pitied him, like we might pity a, a suffering animal or something, this one who's standing by him has sympathy on him. Sympathy is totally different. Sympathy, real sympathy, requires qualification. You have to be qualified to really sympathize with someone. And that's what Jesus could do for Paul. There's only one person who knows what Paul is going through. So there's only one person who knows what to say. And that's the one who's speaking. And he doesn't say much. What does he say? He said basically three things. For his despondency. We, we said Paul's probably in, in, in despondency. Jesus says, take courage. That's, what, that's called encouragement, right? The one thing that you need, if, if you say, I need encouragement, the one thing you don't have is courage. You need an infusion of courage. That's encouragement. Meant, and that's what Jesus is doing here, right? And can just anybody say that stuff to you? I mean, you, you go to work. There's some people that know your face and some people that don't know anything. And they might look at you and say, Ooh, what happened to you? Blah, 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 blah. Well, it's Monday. It'll be over tomorrow. Hey, thanks. I feel great. You know, some people just seem to be incapable of the real stuff kind of like your name aren't there a few people that can say your name unlike anybody else can say your name and who can say your name better than anybody else your mama right and you know when you're in trouble she uses your middle name in there too but sometimes the worst day at school can be totally neutralized by the voice of your mother and the sound of your name she can do that. And when she's gone, that's probably what you miss the most. I think if anybody knows how to say take courage, it'd be our Lord. And only because he's been through hell for us. So this means, those two words, take courage, mean more from this source than they mean from anybody else, period. No contest. For his doubt... Did I do that right? Have I been faithful? Have I been a good witness? Perhaps worried that he'd failed. What does he say next? You have testified about me in Jerusalem. Now that's another thing. Every now and then you need an endorsement or an acknowledgement. And only the right person can say it. Here's where your mother might not be the best source for you. You did a great job in that game. <clears throat> Mom, I fell on my face. I carried the basketball like a football down the court under my arm. They all laughed at me. But if the coach or another player you look up to, this is kind of somebody at the top or maybe just ahead of you, but they say, what does it mean for Jesus of Nazareth, the one who bled and died on the cross, to say to Paul the Apostle, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, you have testified to the facts of me. You did it. You've been faithful. 
I'm happy with your witness. You're doing it. I don't know what that's worth. It blows my mind. How many days do we spend as Christians wondering if God hates us? Not because of what we know of him in the scripture, but how we live and what we know is in our heart and in our head. And that if anybody knew any of that, we'd know we're the biggest fakes and phonies on the whole planet. We never speak of such things. Paul's not going to talk about it. He did some. But to hear Jesus say, box checked, Paul, you've done a good job. And then as far as his fear, maybe this is the end. It's over. I'm, I'm, I'm being benched. No. As you testified about me in Jerusalem, I want you to do the same thing. You're going to do it in Rome. Your dream will be reality. Now, Paul doesn't know how that'll end. It'll end epic. He'll be martyred. But it's going to happen. So I'm saying, what a night. We have a word of courage to chase away the depths of despair. We have a word of commendation, astonishing, I'm sure, with all the mistakes, but faithful. And then a word of appointment, despite all hell united against him, he will preach in Rome. That's quite a night in jail. Yeah, it was a movie, Night at the Museum, <laughs> Night in the Roman Prison. The grace of God is always brightest against the backdrop of darkness. That's the way God chooses. It's not what we would like, what we would sign up for, but it's the truth. And when Jesus comes in the darkness, prisons become sanctuaries. The dark night becomes the noonday sun. Loss is gain. Weakness is strength. Death is life. But there's two types of people in this room who get that. Those who've hurt deeply. And found Jesus to be true. And those who haven't yet. And their faith has yet to be tested. And it seems in one way or another. God has the valley of the shadow of, of death. Appointed for each of us. And on the other side of that shadow. It's not real. It's just a shadow. You come out more like Jesus. And less like yourself than ever before. And some of those things you've, you struggle to even articulate to others. But what I wrote down is here, or what I wrote down here is, do you know this Jesus? Does he know you? This is how he takes care of his own. And we won't know it until we really get into a mess. You might say, well, this is Paul the Apostle. It's different. What, the chief of sinners? You're worse than him? Or you're not as courageous as him? It doesn't matter. Um, God's children are equally lost and equally loved. You, you, can't, you can't play that card. I wish I could. I can't, and you can't either. Maybe our problem is just that we don't notice that Jesus stands by us when the sun is shining. And when the sun is shining, we don't see him. And then we, for some reason, expect that as his child, we should never be in the dark. But he knows better because the dark's where he speaks to us. And it's by his plan. And he stands by us anyway. 
And the Bible describes it as standing at the right hand of the Father as our advocate, making intercession for us. And at times, rescues us from the lion's mouth. Right? I don't know if you feel like you've been in the lion's mouth. That'd be the, the, the devil roaming around like the lion seeking whom he may devour. But he's never gobbled up one of God's children and he never will. It may look like it. it sounds like pages right out of Pilgrim's Progress. But folks, this is one of those passages you just kind of, you want to say, Luke, how can you know what you know about that night and give us like three lines So we'll use our imaginations and extract from it the treasure or jewels found in a cave or a prison cell. Where did David learn how to write songs? Caves. And where does Paul know what to say when he stands before Caesar? Prison. And where do we know how to buckle down and get to the business for which Christ died? Only when the trinkets of this world fade And the reality of our own frailty looms large. That's usually how it works. So we're going to need a shepherd. We're going to need a guide. We're going to need a leader. And we'll sing about that as we wrap things up. He leadeth me. And I hope that'll be something that makes you feel like, wow, what a story about Paul. Could it possibly be true for me? Absolutely. Let's pray. Father in heaven.